As we've made mention already this Lord's Day morning, what a blessed privilege is ours to come together on this occasion to offer worship and homage and devotion to the great God who so wonderfully deserves it. As we begin the lesson, though, might I make a brief announcement or two just by way of some additional scheduling? We've already made note of the sign-up sheet that is out there in the foyer. For those who may not be as aware of it, that Bible Bowl competition will take place in the early part of September, of the eighth day of that month, in fact. And on that day, there are several hundred teams will gather from all over this part of the state, as well as even other states, and compete by way of questions over the books of James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude. As those questions are asked, in terms of preparation for our teams here, we have decided to perhaps make some test or preparatory type questions that they can practice on in their Bible study classes. And that's the purpose of that sign-up sheet, so that the teachers of those classes or the person sponsoring it doesn't have to prepare all of the questions. If we could be of aid to the person by perhaps individuals or families taking a certain chapter and making questions from that chapter, it would certainly be helpful. I would make note to you, though, that we should be aware that the version of the Bible that they will be utilizing on that day and the one from which the questions will be asked is the English Standard Version. So if make certain as you make those questions, please, to use the English Standard Version. And if you happen not to have a copy of that particular version, on the Sycamore Church of Christ website, you can print out the ESV chapters over which the questions will be asked. So you can just print them out from your Internet access and, and make your questions out of them. Now, the questions themselves vary greatly in difficulty. If you've ever had opportunity to be there, some are more straightforward, but many are quite challenging. So as you make questions, don't necessarily think they need to be easy. Don't necessarily think they all need to be excruciatingly hard. Cover, cover the complete gambit, if you would, and that will certainly help our students and our teachers to learn more about the Word of God. A second example, or a second announcement, the Vacation Bible Schools. We already have had a, a significant listing this morning, and I'd like to add a few to that, if I might. My family and I have been invited to participate in several VBSs this week, and we'd like to extend an invitation to you to come be with us if you can. Tuesday night, I'll be the guest speaker at the Union Hill Church of Christ in Clay County, Tennessee, for their VBS. Thursday night, I'll be the guest speaker at the uh, VBS at Flynn's Creek down in Jackson County. Uh, all these are at 7 o'clock. And Friday night, I'll be the guest speaker at the Carthage Church of Christ in, in uh, Smith County. So if you have opportunity to come to any of them, we'd, uh, we'd certainly appreciate and look forward to seeing you there. But there are other VBSs besides those even mentioned. There may even be others of whom we're not aware. Third and brief announcement I'd like to take just a moment of your time to make has to do with the lesson for tonight. When we come back together this evening at the 5.30 hour, we will on that occasion begin a series of lessons on the last book of the Holy Word of God, a series of lessons concerning the book of Revelation. There are many questions that are frequently asked about that book. In fact, some of the questions are extraordinarily good. Given the character and nature of that book, we'll begin a series of lessons in which we will strive to look rather in a detailed and careful fashion and see what we can ascertain and learn from that book. So please come back and be with us if you can at all. For over the next several weeks, we'll have each of the Sunday night lessons in the book of Revelation. To our lesson this morning, on the screen to my left, the wall to my left, we will 
consider this morning a lesson taken from the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. As Eddie read for us a moment ago from the 8th chapter of that book, the 10th verse, we noticed that a comment was made, a comment that emphasized the greatness and the power of God. Today, as we look in a more detailed way at the demonstration of God's power, we will ultimately conclude the lesson by trying to apply that to my life and yours daily. How is it that we can certainly always live in ultimate fact of God's great power and the meaning it can have in our daily walk of life? To begin that, let's make a few comments along this, along this line. This chapter, chapter number 8 in the book of Exodus, is couched or housed within that section of the Old Testament in which the children of Israel are yet in bondage in Egypt. Let's recurse then a brief bit about the nature of their release and how that will have a great meaning in terms of our understanding. As we read in Genesis 46, the children of Israel went into Egypt in peaceful means. They had gone there to be preserved and protected by Joseph from the famine that was ravaging the land of Canaan. As such... They, however, were blessed mightily and greatly by the God of heaven. Their numbers multiplied to the point ultimately that the Egyptians became fearful of them. They were afraid that in time of war or in times of other controversies, these Hebrews who lived actually amongst them in the land of Goshen would side with their enemy and would aid in the defeat of Egypt. Thus, when there arose a king, Exodus 1 verse 8, that knew not Joseph, they enslaved the Hebrews. They caused them, in fact, to involve themselves with great rigor in building tremendous palaces and other cities for the Pharaoh. The children of Israel in Exodus 2, verses 23 to 25, cried unto God for deliverance. They cried and they moaned for recognition of the terrible plight in which they were. In the very next verse, Exodus 3, verse 1, God heard their plea and, in fact, commissioned an 80-year-old man to be the significant agent in their delivery. That man's name was Moses. Through the fact of that burning bush, God spoke with him and commissioned him to be the critical figure in bringing Israel out of Egyptian bondage. At first, Moses was a bit hesitant. However, by the end of chapter 4, he had accepted the commission that God gave him, and thus he, with his brother Aaron at his side, off to Egypt they went to face the Pharaoh and to, in fact, plead and even demand that he release the Hebrews. As we remember, the Pharaoh was not at all interested in releasing them at first. In fact, he opposed it mightily and very straightforwardly, so much so that he would not even let them go three days' journey and thus make sacrifice. However, God had a message for Moses. Moses, through my actions in regard to Pharaoh and deliverance of my people, you shall see my greatness and my power. And beginning in chapter 7 and continuing through chapter 11, we see ten plagues brought upon the Egyptians. These plagues manifested and demonstrated in straightforward order the greatness of God, the power that He observed and had over the natural world, and the reaction of the human beings in Egypt toward Him. I've listed on this wall the character in order of those plagues. We will remember them, starting from that opening one in which the water was turned into blood, to the frogs, the lice, the flies, the moraine of beasts, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, finally the death of the firstborn. 
All of them were brought one after another upon the Egyptians. And isn't it fascinating that the children of Israel were spared from them? Time after time it's noted that the children of Israel had no flies in Goshen. They did not suffer the boils in Goshen. They did not suffer the matter of the locusts in Goshen. God's people were preserved and protected. However, there was the fact these came upon Egypt and finally they learned the lesson. After the tenth plague, not only the Egyptians but the Pharaoh, in fact, urged Egypt, or urged the Israelites to depart and to leave. And they did so hurriedly. And ultimately at the Red Sea, the Egyptians were drowned and finally Israel was free. Might I ask that you and I consider this morning the thoroughness of those ten plagues and look upon them maybe in a way that we haven't done so in quite a while. Demonstration of God's power and His supremacy. To begin with, let us notice, when Israel went into Egypt, Israel was a Bible, a, a God-fearing people. Jacob was a God-fearer. The others were as well. His sons were aware and knowledgeable of the God of heaven. However, when they came into Egypt, the Egyptians were idolatrous people. In fact, Egypt served a whole host of gods. As we proceed through the lesson, we shall notice a few of them, but there were dozens of various gods that Egyptians served. Gods of the sun, of the sea, of the darkness, of the home, of the Pharaoh, of the family. You name it, and they had a God by which they worshipped and served certain aspects of reality. Therein was the problem. The children of Israel for 215 years had lived in Egypt. During that time, no doubt, they had come to know very well the Egypt's gods. They had come to know very well the fact that they, the Egyptians worshipped others. No doubt many of the people of Israel had also come to at least have somewhat of a degree of consideration of those Egyptian gods. This was a demonstration in these plagues that God was superior to all of these Egyptian ones. In fact, starting at the bottom of that screen, consider the following with me. The very first of those ten plagues was again the turning of water into blood. And as we remember the scene in Exodus chapter 7, it was not only the water of the Nile. It was the water in every pool, every pond, every stream. It was the water, in fact, in even the vessels in their homes. All of it was turned to blood. We are told that the fish died in the Nile. We're told that the land stank terribly. For seven days that state of affairs continued. What was being illustrated to the Egyptians? The Egyptians, of course, appreciated the importance of the Nile River. It was their livelihood. It was everything to them. Its waters provided the agricultural needs that they had. Out of it came the power of the entirety of that nation. And yet for seven days, the water was useless. It was blood. The thing that God was illustrating was that Egyptian god of the Nile... No match for God. That God the Egyptians served who supposedly protected the waters of the Nile and made those waters life-giving and useful, that God had no power over the God of heaven. The simple lesson was this, there is no God of the Nile. He is no match even if any matter of humanity can be stated, no match for the goodness and greatness of Jehovah God. What about the frogs? 
once the waters of the Nile were returned and revisited. We notice that another plague was brought upon them because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. This plague, frogs appeared everywhere. They were in the Pharaoh's house. They were in all the houses of the people. The lesson was this. The Egyptians worshipped a god of the home. This god supposedly protected the homes and made them in such a way for safety and security. And as noted on that screen, some of the gods the Egyptians worshipped actually had idols that were shaped like frogs. Moses, by way of the power of God, illustrated something else here. This God that you supposedly worship, Egypt, this God that's supposed to protect your homes, He is not a God at all. There is a true God in heaven who controls not only these frogs, but all the homes related to Egypt as well. We are noting that one by one, God's supremacy is being established, and oh so powerfully, but the Pharaoh did not learn his lesson. Plague number three. We now notice this plague that the King James Version calls that of lice. The Scriptures specifically indicate that the dust of the earth was scattered in the heavens by Moses and that became lice. The point is this. The Egyptians worshipped a god of the earth, a god who supposedly watched over earth and used her as the protective means for the Egyptians and the greatness of that ancient society. When that when the last became such as it was, that was another demonstration. God has power over this earth. It's not this God that you supposedly worship, Egypt. Each of these gods that the Egyptians were worshiping, their major ones were addressed one by one and shown to be no match for the God of heaven, shown to be powerless, shown to be futile and vain. Plague number four. This time it's flies. And these flies were so numerous that the Old Testament book of Exodus informs us that again they were in the palace, they were in their homes, they were so thick that they were beyond annoying. But yet that's a direct contest between the God of heaven and the God that was supposed to protect not only the home but also the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh was a rather revered person in that ancient society. He was in many ways worshipped. He was to be regarded, protected, considered, and there was a God of the Pharaoh. Isn't it interesting the God of the Pharaoh was unable to keep the flies out of the Pharaoh's palace? God, you see, was superior to that supposed God, and we come to note the fact that, again, the Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Plague number five, the moraine of beasts. We again notice that cattle were extremely important to Egyptian society. The cattle were in many ways a strong element of their food supply, their livelihood. Plague number five was a direct contest between Jehovah God of heaven and the God that was supposed to protect the cattle of Egypt. There was a cattle God. We notice, of course, again, there was no competition really. The moraine of beasts came upon them and they were powerless to stop it, to eliminate it, to cure it. We notice, though, that the Pharaoh often would lie in the sense that he would plead with Moses and Aaron to take away the flies of the moraine of beasts. Upon so doing, though, he would harden his heart. And so plague number six. This time humanity was addressed, boils upon man and beast. Those boils were very open sores and extremely irritating and annoying in a very serious medical condition. As those boils came upon them, 
That's a direct contest between, again, Jehovah God, the God of Moses and Aaron and Egypt, and the gods that were those of magic and protecting of health. One more time, God was shown to be superior. The Egyptian magicians could not remove the boils. No medicine of Egypt could take them away. But yet when Moses and Aaron pleaded or prayed to God to remove them, they were removed. That shows again God's supremacy. Consider plague number seven. We've now arrived at the point of noting that these last four will heighten and in fact have greater tendency to tense as we consider the following. Plague number seven was the plague of hail. As this plague came upon the Egyptians, again, the land of Goshen was not subject to it. But in Egypt, they worshipped the God of the sky. And they had names for all of these gods. But this God of the sky, we might note that when Moses and Aaron made pleas and prayers in regard to the coming of that hail, as God said, it came and Egypt was powerless. That God of the sky could do nothing to stop it. You see, one by one, Egypt should have learned a lesson that there is no God of the Nile. There is no God of the Pharaoh. There's no God of the home. There is but one true God in heaven. This God of the sky could not stop the coming of the hail. Plague number eight, the locusts. Whatever was left by virtue of that hail, we notice the locusts came in droves and consumed whatever might have remained. Another attack on one of the powerful gods that the Egyptians worshipped. The god of the air, the god of the strength. That god of the air that they might have thought could protect them from the coming as that wind brought the locusts. It was not able to stop them. The locusts came and one more time God was shown to be superior, absolutely supreme in all ways. Plague number nine, darkness. We're taught in our history classes that one of the major gods that Egypt worshipped was the god of the sun. And yet here was a straightforward conflict between Jehovah God and the god of the sun. And yet darkness came upon the land. The text says that it was so dark it could be felt. It was pitch black dark. And yet it was daytime. We see that God is superior to that supposed god of the sun, that Egyptian god called Ra which leads us to the last one, the death of the firstborn, plague number 10. That last plague, of course, was a direct conflict between, again, the God of heaven, the true God, and the God that had to do with the protection of Pharaoh and life itself. For you see, the Pharaoh's son was also one who died that night. That God the Egyptians worshipped was no match for the God of heaven. That was a figment of human imagination. There was no such God. Can we not see in all of these the simple fact that in each case God demonstrated His supremacy? He demonstrated His superiority. Man and his figments of imagination can concoct nothing that can compete with the greatness of God. Throughout the centuries, many have not learned that lesson. They have continued to think that they, by one means or another, are able to devise ways to do better than God, to at least compete with Him in ways of wisdom, and it simply isn't so. To look at these plagues from that perspective, let us look at some applications or lessons from them that may be very helpful to you and me still today, so many centuries after the time of those plagues. Some of the texts that we will consider will point us directly to matters that we face day by day in our lives. 
Let's begin by noting the major lesson that these plagues taught. When they came on the Egyptians, God could have done anything He wanted to ultimately have released the Hebrews. God is that powerful. Why did He choose to use ten plagues? We've noted that it was a lesson to both the Egyptians and the Israelites that these things that are worshipped in Egypt are not gods. That lesson could be presented in this way. The Hebrews, it seems, often fall, fell into the same issue of problems. In the days of Isaiah, we notice in Isaiah 46, verse number 9, even in centuries following the time of the Egyptian delivery, the people of Israel were still interested in idols. In fact, that chapter in some ways is somewhat funny. As the chapter begins, the writer Isaiah speaking for God would say that these idols, you have to move them around with your own hands. Isn't it a bit unusual that you are worshiping something that you actually have to move yourself? Doesn't that illustrate that you're more powerful than it? But when he comes to verse number 9, God speaking says, There is none other. There is none other besides me. There are no, none of these figments of the human imagination. No gods like that. God is the only God that there is. As the children of Israel came from time to time to appreciate that point, it still was a problem as late as the book of Malachi. Yet one more time, they were suffering the difficulties of idolatry. When our Savior came upon the earth, what is it that He affirmed near the close of His ministry, shortly before He ascended back to the Father? In Matthew 28, verse 18, He said, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Lord, how much of it then does not belong to you? None. He said, All of it. All authority. Other translations read that all power hath been given unto me in heaven and in earth. When our Savior made that statement in Matthew 28, he had already been crucified. He would already been resurrected. He was shortly to ascend back to his Father. And there he would receive a kingdom and glory and majesty and power and might. Daniel 7 verse 14. Jesus has all power and all authority. You and I then make a dramatic mistake. And all mankind do the same when they think there's any real competition to God. The majesty of this universe is a direct testimony to his greatness. You and I can peer into the heavens and note the vastness of the stars. Far more than we can even count, our God made every one of them. We can turn to a particular means of researching and investigating the depths of the ocean. More creatures there than we can count, and our God made every one of them. Didn't God say to Abraham at one point that your seed will be as numerous as the sand on a seashore? Who can count the grains on a sandy beach? Our God can. On other occasions when God likened Himself to anything more powerful than the men of the Old Testament could imagine, for instance, in the book of Job, chapter 26, who is it that hanged the earth on nothing? Chapter 26, verse 7. Men can't do that, but God can. Our God is supreme, and we need to learn that lesson over and over again. But that's not the only lesson worthy of our attention. His supremacy means something daily for you and me. For consider the following. Things that are human are not gods. Sometimes man worships at the idols and shrines of various things. 
he perhaps wouldn't openly admit it, but he does pay great homage, devotion, and attention to various and sundry activities and things in life. And in so doing, he makes the same mistake the Egyptians made by paying devotion to gods that are not gods at all. Each of us perhaps can be tempted on occasion to do such things. Consider some of these listings that I've given for our thinking. First of all, weakness and the inability of man is to be noted. All of us in our better moments surely would understand how limited we are. Jesus on one occasion in Matthew 6 asked, Who is able by his own means to add a, sta a cubit to his stature? Not a one of us. We can't make ourselves grow when we want to. We are not able, in fact, to do those things that alter and change the physical character of the ultimate nature of this universe. Man is not that powerful. But notice what else. Despite that fact, how many in our land and in our world seem to worship at the shrine called the environment. They are such that they are more concerned about a tree or a leaf than they are about a human life. They're more concerned about a particular animal than anything else imaginable. They will protest, and they will in fact make great amendments in the protestation of bills, all to protect some character of the environment. Let me be quick to say, we should, by the character of being good stewards of what God has given us, take care of our environment. But the environment is not a God. The nature about us, though beautiful and pristine as it may often be, it is not God. What is it that was stated in Deuteronomy 11, verses 8 through 17? Shortly before the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River and entered the land of Canaan, that blessed and beautiful land of God, what is it that they were told? They were given some instructions about the environment. To summarize, this is what they were told. You just came out of the land of Egypt where, though that may have been an interesting and powerful land, the land of Canaan is far more blessed environmentally. You will have water aplenty. Your land will be very fertile and natural. This land will be far superior to the land of Egypt. But yet, he closed that by stating who is responsible for it being this way. Who makes that land in Canaan so fertile and so well watered and so moist? You must never forget the God of heaven that's leading you to this land and who's making that land the way it is. That's a lesson Israel needed to learn. Not to give too much consideration of worship, if you will, to the nature of environment. But what else? Other things that may often be a consideration as well. And our land, might I say, is sorely afflicted with the following malady. There are many who will worship at the temple of human reasoning. They think that they know as much as God. They think in their capability of reason and logic and presentation and reading and understanding and literature that they are able to figure things out on their own. They don't need God. They don't need any activity or word from Him. And hence, with that kind of attitude, this becomes irrelevant. They think they've got the answers, not God. They think that science can present the ultimate answers or that mathematics or that some other logical pursuit like philosophy. And hence, this book is just a book of myths and fables concocted several thousand years ago. Those who so conclude are making the same mistake that the Egyptians made in Exodus 8. 
human reasoning is not on par with God. It never has been, it never will be. What is it that was stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? In that majestic chapter, we remember that there was a discussion between what the Jews desired and what the Greeks wanted. The Jews, we are told, longed after signs. The Greeks longed after wisdom and the other affairs of presentation. The ancient Jewish society longed for a sign to illustrate the Messiah. The ancient Greek societies desired to know more about philosophy and things like human reasoning. Paul, in dramatic fashion, told those in Corinth the following thing. He said, The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, we today must never forget that same fact. We are not, in terms of human reasoning, equal to God. Thus, we ever need again the character of His Word to look deeply into it and to therein find the wisdom that not only leads through this life, but the wisdom that leads to everlasting life. But yet consider another. What about the temple of education? You perhaps have heard some speak about the role that education plays and how to them it is everything. And by education, I mean temporal education. As much schooling, as much learning as one might acquire. Again, let me quickly say that education is a good thing when used correctly. You can use that by way of aiding yourself and your family. And what's more, God has promised to bless that He will provide ways for you to impact and influence others for good using that education. But when one makes that education a God and makes it more important than anything else, one has made the same mistake the Egyptians made. What is it Ecclesiastes, the wise man, affirmed in Ecclesiastes 12? He said, Of the making of many books there is no end. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. It doesn't matter how much you and I study. A lifetime, perhaps, that we'll never have all the answers physically. But we need to study this book. In Jeremiah chapter 9, we read in that ancient prophet in the days of old the fact that men are wise only, and I repeat only, if they're knowledgeable and wise in the Word of God. We, you and I can be as foolish as can be in all ways that matter, even though we may have a string of PhDs after our name. It'll make no difference if we are not knowledgeable about this book. What's contained in it? The things that are found therein. These are just some of the listings of what men often worship and bow before. As we race to the conclusion of our lesson in our time this morning, there's only a couple more that might well be mentioned. As we do that, let us each realize that we're aware that even we ourselves might sometimes be tempted by the work of Satan to forget God and pursue these. But there are those who happily dwell in the tabernacle of their profession. To them, their job is everything. It's more important than their family, certainly more important than their service to God. You may have known someone like that. It can be a difficult matter to help them see that God really is the one to be worshipped, not a job. In fact, is it not true that in Mark 8 we're told one last time the greatness of that decision? For didn't Jesus say, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, on the day of judgment, what will it have mattered if we had owned the whole world and yet find ourselves lost? We haven't gained a thing. In fact, we've lost it all. 
Doesn't that teach us yet again that our profession, whatever that pursuit is, and by the power and grace of God, we should do what we can with what we have. But it's no replacement for God. It's not the thing to be worshipped. And then finally, there are those in our land who worship the God of entertainment, the God of recreation. But that too is a serious mistake, isn't it? For even though it's wonderful to have fun and to make use of that particular aspect of livelihood, even Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 9 about the races that they would run in Corinth. But you and I again must keep that in its proper place too, shouldn't we? For isn't it also true in 1 Timothy 4.8 how that we're reminded that if that's the replacement, we are sorely mistaken. For there Paul said, "...bodily exercise profiteth little." But godliness is profitable unto all things, not only of the life that now is, but of the life which is to come. You see, when we recognize God as the Supreme One, He will be worshipped, and all the other matters and affairs of life must be kept in proper perspective so that our service to Him will be proper, appropriate, and right. And thus, as we notice perhaps the text of Proverbs 3, we're told there to trust in the Lord with all our heart. He didn't say to trust in the gods of entertainment, the character of profession, the things of education, though those are part of life. May you and I be wise enough to never allow them to be the gods that we worship. This particular lesson has used the issues of the days of the ancient Israelites in Exodus 8. And in verse number 10, as we read in the lesson text this morning, there is none else. There is none other than God. Today, as we conclude our lesson then and consider these matters, would you just summarize with me and notice some of the things we've learned? The ancient Israelites, as well as the Egyptians, were given a crash course in the supremacy of God. In ten plagues, they were led to understand that they were never to worship the gods that were in Egypt. Once God brought them out, they and they alone were to worship Him, and He was their only God. But what's more, as lessons we noticed in that for us today, mankind still suffers under the same plague of worshiping many things, be it profession, schooling, education, human reasoning. But we've learned yet again that if we so do, we make the same mistake the Egyptians made. May we wisely then realize that even God's foolishness is greater than we. There is none other than God. He is the only one that can declare the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46.10. He is the only one that can provide the means of not only life here, but life beyond, 1 Timothy 4.8. This morning, are you a Christian? Have you obeyed the blessed will revealed in the Word of God, the timeless and eternal things that He has made known to the human family? This is not human reasoning. It is as far above it as heaven is above the earth. If you haven't obeyed that initially today and let the Lord wash your sins away, realize with me, if you would, that this tells the record of the coming of Jesus and how that He for man did what man could not do for Himself to provide a way for His sins to be cleansed. If you haven't had that done in your life yet today, obey Him at once. You need to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His glorious name as the only begotten Son of God and then be buried in water, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And when your sins are remitted, you will rise a new creature in Christ, Romans 6, verse 4. And you'll be ready to walk with Him through glory in this life and look forward to the glory beyond. If you've done that, 
but you have forgotten that there is but one God. And you've let other things take the place of Him. Come back to that first love and again bow before His throne and no other. You must be faithful to Him. And if we could help you in terms of prayer, we'd be happy and honored to do that. If either of these things is the need of your life today, will you not let that be made known while together we stand and while we sing?